this weird stuff now. We have Terry Miller and Stacy Hubeck taking you off the beat path. Hey, hey, hey. Hey. Back in our freaking first kind of sound where we're probably not sounding all that great. <laughs> yeah, we're still on our quarantined episodes here in the state of Pennsylvania. I couldn't, I couldn't even talk when we first started. You know the way I tried to say that? I meant to say, like, we don't have our shit together with our sound, like, always, but it's I like, Hey, I think we've been doing better with the sound. It's not that. It's just with us being in a remote location, it kind of sounds a little bad. Yeah. So. Listen up, listeners. We didn't go last week. Have you missed us? We've missed you. I didn't think I like talking on this podcast as much as I really do. So I don't do it. So, uh, we are now on a different host than we were when we left you. And this is officially season two of Off the Beaten Path. Season two of Off the Beaten Path. What's the platform we're using? The what? What's the platform we're using now? We are using Anchor and... Um, you can get more information at anchor.fm. Nice. You were using Spreaker. Shout out to them for holding it down for season one. Yep. And now we have moved on to Anchor because it gives us a lot more options and uh, we're going to have some fun with that. This is exciting. Uh-huh. So what have you been up to, Stacy? Well, that sounds very boring. So let me come in. <laughs> let me come in and bore you even more. <laughs> so during the two weeks since we've been on a hi- hiatus, in between episodes and us getting things figured out on this whole quarantine type thing, still getting our shit together, but we're slowly getting there. And then once we get there, then the quarantine's going to be over and we're going to be back to recording like normal. So right now we're doing our best and we hope you guys are enjoying our episodes still as we continue on with season two. In those two weeks, I have been laid off a temporary layoff from my job. Um, still working at mom, pa. However, I was laid off from my day job, which is the construction company 
in Maryland. So before I got laid off, let me tell you, I had a plan. I was going to conquer the world. I had all these things I was going to do. I was just ready. And then I got laid off and I don't do shit. Not one damn thing. I just lay around, watch TV, fuck off, you know. I don't do anything. Why is this? Exactly. I don't know. I'm just, like, exhausted from staring at my computer all day from work, especially because my stress level has increased that I kind of want to, like, lay around and watch Criminal Minds, which has been very satisfying. <laughs> Okay, so crazy news, and I'm not going to name names because privacy, but I, after 28 years of social distancing, got to meet a half-brother that I didn't know that I had, which was okay. <laughs> So, um, I've shared that with a few people, and it's been really cool and really awesome. I got to fill in um, a ton of pictures, and it's been really great. That is awesome. So are you going to meet up with him again? Yeah, after the crisis is over, we have plans to meet up and either do some cooking or eat some exotic food. My dad was really big. Our dad was really big into cooking, um, and it's a passion that we all do to share. So we're going to do something like that. So how would you just, like, describe him? Does he have a lot of, like, attributes like your dad I mean, like, did you oh, yeah. see so your dad I, in him? Yeah, so I've described it multiple times of, like, meeting him was, like, interacting with all of the best parts of my dad that I met. Because my dad has passed away, so the listeners won't have to pass away when they're 21. So, unfortunately, he didn't get to meet my dad, but he gets to know him through me. So, that's exciting. Oh, that's awesome. I'm really glad to hear that you finally got to meet him after all this time. That must have been yeah, nerve-wracking. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew he existed, but only a little bit, and I had never thought about it, honestly, after I was told a little bit, but not too much. Um, but he, obviously, not knowing his father, like, spent a lot of time contemplating and looking up stuff and putting on me and some stuff a few years ago. And, um, from there, and on That's awesome. And so, how did you how did you guys reconnect? He messaged me on Facebook. I was drinking on a Saturday night, <laughs> and I looked at my phone and I had this long message. And I was like, "What's this?" And then I read it and was like, "Holy crap!" And my sister actually was sitting here, um, six feet away. He said to me. Uh, but he was here drinking a little bit too, and we were both like, "Holy shit, this is happening!" <laughs> wow. And it was happening. So, and then we met like that next day. Um, he happened to be going towards a park nearby my house, so it was getting ready to rain, and I was supposed to be over, and I was got some pictures here and stuff. So we met. Um, and that was cool. And he lived like 10 minutes away from me, you know, from Cecil County, which is pretty crazy. So we were very close for a long time. And he's eight years older than I am. Wow. That's interesting. So 
let's uh, fill the listeners in. So where have you been as far as the end of your relationship with Deuce? And how is there still a lot of tension there? Or how are you guys dealing with that now? So I think it's good that you guys have kind of moved on at this point. I know it was getting a little tense there for a while. And I know all relationships when they end, they have to go through a certain period where, I mean, and it all depends on how they end too. So don't get me wrong when I say this, they all go through a certain period where they have kind of like that slowdown, if you know what I mean. Yep. And you have to go through that. Now, sometimes it's a little more heightened and more tense. And I see that. I mean, I feel that when I see that more often is when you're in a long term relationship and then you're going to get that tension and that pulling and that fighting and that bickering because you've been together for so long. You know each other so well that you're going to know how to push the other person's buttons. So I think that it's really good that you guys have kind of worked through that and have mitigated a lot of that stuff as, you know, you move on with your life and he moves on with his life. So is there anybody new in your life or are you still single as a Pringle? Single as a Pringle, Terry. And even if there is someone new in my life, I don't know if the podcast would be where I would tell you guys about it. She's <laughs> my secret. Oh, man. Well, they're eventually going to find out eventually, you fellow hikers yeah, out there. Yeah, I agree. We could keep some yeah, things I've off had, the podcast. I've had, some nice, I've had some nice dinners and some nice times, and I'm meeting and hanging out with some people. Like that. Okay. I mean, there's always room for getting to know new people. And yeah, that's the whole point of meeting new people. Oh, yes, most definitely. And also, like, I've, like, been feeling myself a lot again, so that's really good. That is good. Feeling a lot more self-worth? What'd you say? Feeling a lot more self-worth? Oh, yeah, definitely. Forgot. What, what did I, I said this, I said, what did I say? I think I might have said this on the podcast before, but I was, like, I forgot what a bad bitch I really am. <laughs> all right, Stacy. So, what's your message to all the girls out there? Well, I was saying, um, like, just like I'm feeling myself, don't forget about what bad bitches y'all are, too. <laughs> yeah, girls. I, I knew, like, I had, I mean, I was happy, and I, mean, I wasn't happy with my relationship, but I was in a good place with myself. And 
don't know. Like, being single again, there's so much to do to another person. And that's a good thing. It's good to do stuff to other people. But it's nice to want to be able to spend that thing and that energy, like, on me. So, cool. Yeah, that's true. And you want somebody to spend the same energy that you spend on them. And you deserve that at this point. Yeah, I do. All right. So let's move on with our episode here. I know I feel like I'm, I'm so out of practice. It's been so long since we've done one of these. And it's just Stace and I here today. So how about a question, Stacy? What is something you have always held on to from someone in the past? Like physically? Yeah, uh, yeah, like physically. What have you held on to? Um, okay, so I have. I don't. I think it's still upstairs in my office. I really am not a hundred percent sure. But for the longest time, I had this piece of coal that, like, my first, well, I would say, one of my first, quote, boyfriends, I think he was literally 12, um, that he went somewhere on, like, a family vacation, and I think the most we ever did was, with, I don't even, was in his house, like, the time. We lived in my neighborhood, so, like, our relationship was football and walking around the neighborhood and black white tags. Um, but he bought, brought me back this piece of white coral and I had that for years. And like I said, I'm pretty sure it's still up there unless it broke. I can't remember. But it was like one of those things from a random person that I've had forever. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. So something that I've held on to um, for a long time is uh, debt from my wife. Debt? Debt. <laughs> oh, my God. I guess that's like what I inherited from my relationship with Deuce is a little bit of debt. <laughs> <laughs> Doug's answer. Like is, uh, let's, let's not. My ex is what I meant to say. Yeah. Leave that name like. not name that on social media. That's good. Yeah, so Doug's answer is D's nuts. My parents gave them for me or to me. Quarantine's <laughs> made us all act like we're 11. <laughs> I swear to God, the other day I was with someone and they were like talking about frogs. And I don't know what possessed me, but I literally was like, <laughs> I'm just like I don't know just let it happen so so uh Stacy how are you gonna weird me out this week okay so this week I am weirding you out talking about real cases of fairies or hidden treasure oh I'm intrigued Intrigued. Okay. So I'm going to skip through a couple of articles because I like some of these. Um, so I was, of course, listening to my favorite murder, and 
listening to one of the mini episodes where they talk about hitting open walls. And I realized I had never done something like that for this podcast. I'd never talked about like buried treasure. So I thought that was a good one. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is in the Rocky Mountains. So apparently there is a late Air Force veteran and art dealer named Forrest Fenn who once claimed to have buried a test with $1 million worth of diamonds emeralds, rubies, and gold coins in the Rocky Mountains during um, the early 80s. So, this uh, the article is written in 2018 that I am reading from. It's a CNBC article by Yanni Blonder. Um, and it's so an 87-year-old millionaire buries treasure in the Rockies, and he's offered one main clip. So, he was a former veteran, pilot, and art dealer, and he estimates um, it's estimated that as many as 350,000 people have gone hunting for the treasure so far. He claims it's somewhere in the Rockies, roughly 1,000 miles between Santa Fe and New Mexico and the Canadian border, and it's worth millions. Um, no one knows where the treasure is but me, he told NPR in 2016, and that includes his wife. He's quoted as saying, if I die tomorrow, the knowledge of that location goes in the coffin with me. So he's left one clue, and it's a 24-line poem that he wrote in his self-published memoir, Grill of the Case. He has since shared the poem on Instagram, so I'm going to read it to you. Okay. So the the poem is on a map, and the map shows the Rocky Mountains. Um, and just for everyone who isn't on the West Coast, the Rocky Mountains includes this goes through the states of Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, and I'm pretty sure California, but uh, not 100 percent sure. Yeah, I mean, probably. I was really bad at geography. Um, so it's like <laughs> a map, and it shows the Rocky Mountains, but it shows the part of uh, Montana through New Mexico. Um, okay, so the poem goes, As I have gone alone in there and with my treasures gold, I can keep my secret where and hint of riches new and old. Begin it where warm waters halt and, and take it in the canyon down, not far, but too far to walk. Put in below the heavens of ground. From there, there is no place for the meat. The end is ever dropping nigh. There'll be no paddle up your creek. Just heavy loads and water, just heavy loads and water high. If you've been wise and found the blaze, look quickly down your quest to cease, but carry scant with marvel gaze. Just take the chest and go in peace. So why is it that I must go and leave my trove for all to seek? The answer I already know. I've done it tired and now I'm weak. So hear me all and listen good. Your effort will be worth the cold if you break and in the wood I give you the gold. And he says that all the information you need to find the chapters in the poem, the chapters in my book, have very subtle hints that are not deliberately placed to aid the seeker. Good luck in the search. And again, if you guys want to separate yourself, um, the memoir is called The Thrill of the Chase. And um, Forrest Fen, so F O R R E S T dot F E N N is his Instagram, and that's where the map and the poem um, is posted. 
So apparently the treasure is a chest, nearly a square foot in size, and weighs 40 pounds. It's full of emeralds, rubies, gold, and diamonds. All artifacts that then a self-taught archaeologist amassed during his own sometimes controversial explorations in the Southwest. Um, so apparently he saw the test when he was diagnosed with cancer in 1988, and he planned to drag it off the mountain to die beside it. But after he lived, he left it in his walk-in vault for years, where witnesses confirmed the NPR they saw it filled to the brim with valuables. And then during the Great Recession, he decided to hide it and launch the hunt years later. Um, I will say, I think a few people have passed away, like, searching for this treasure. Uh, at least four people are believed to have died in accidents while searching. Um, this led some people for, to call for Fen to end the hunt, but he has it. Um, instead, he added a few additional clues to his blog to help people stay safe and i'm going to read these clues as well so clue number one the treasure chest is not underwater nor is it at the grande river it is not necessary to move large rocks or climb up or down a street steep precipice please remember that i was about 80 years old when i made two trips for my vehicle to where i hit the trigger he said this search is supposed to be fun and it says, he has also affirmed that hiding the treasure in the first place was largely about encouraging families to enjoy the outdoors. I wanted to give the kids something to do, he's quoted as saying. They spend too much time in the gaming room or playing with their little handheld puffing machines. Um, I hope parents will take their children camping and hiking in the mountains. I hope they'll fish, look for fossils, and look for my treasure. Uh, supposedly, hundreds of thousands have gone looking for it, and his uh, little Endeavor, he's quoted as saying, has been more successful, or has been successful beyond his wildest dreams. So that is the main story of uh, Horace Ben and his hidden treasure in the Rockies. And I'm going to also talk about, I'm not, none of them are this long, but I'm going to go through a couple of other hidden treasures um, as well. So in 2013, this California couple found a container that was filled with $20 gold coins, and so they continued to like dig around, and they found um, 1,420 gold pieces, uh, 50 $10 coins, and four or $5 pieces, all dated from 1847 to 1894, and it was one coin was estimated be worth at least a million dollars so they found a freaking fortune and they were literally just walking their dog for a walk taking their dog for a walk with a rusty hand partially buried in the ground isn't that insane can you imagine that is insane um the sorry what was it the other one i had was I can't find it, I'm sorry. Um, oh, the other list I found was uh, seven of the biggest treasure troves ever found. And so I'll read these off too, because these were pretty cool, just because they have awesome names and they like remind me of pirate stories. So the first one is called the, the Keardale Ford. This was in 1840, and it was worth approximately 3.2 
million. Um, and it was presented to Queen Victoria and is now in display at the British Museum. And it was a hoard of Viking treasure with almost, over almost $9,000 in, or 9,000 pieces, including silver coins, jewelry, anglers, just like silver bits and pieces of everything you can look in the picture. It's just like what you would imagine Vikings doing, going around and being like, give me anything that you have that's silver. Some of them are just like small pieces. Um, there's the Hawksnay Hoard, which was found in 1982, and that is also valued at approximately $3.8 million. And this was found because a farmer lost his hammer in a field, and he called his metal detector to help find it. And instead of finding his hammer, he found an oak chest with a collection of silver spoons, gold jewelry, coins, all dating back to the 4th or 5th century. Um, this was also thought by the British Museum, and the hammer that started it all is also in the museum as well, <laughs> which I think is funny. <laughs> uh, so the third one, this is called the Statfordshire Hoard, um, which sounds super, like, fancy. And, you know, some of these are found really recently. So the first one I named was found in 1840, but the second one was found in 1992, so 28 years ago, and this one, the Statfordshire Hoard, was found in 2009. And this was $4.1 million. Um, again, a metal detector in a field, uh, he stumbled across the largest trove of Anglo-Saxon Trevor ever found. It included over 3,500 items, most of which were military-related, as well as weaponry, several religious artifacts, and lots of decorative items. The fourth one was called the Throat of Treasure. It was found in 1985 to 1988 in Old Building um, in a Polish town was being demolished. A vase was found beneath the foundation of the building and inside were more than 3,000 silver coins dating back to the 14th century. In the same town, a couple years later, another building was knocked down and more gold and silver coins and jewelry, including a gold crown, was found. Um, the fifth biggest treasure trove for is called the Caesarea Sunken treasure. This was found in 2015 and it's valued at priceless. Um, scuba divers explored the seabed near the harbor of Caesarea National Park, Israel, and they thought they stumbled across a child's toy when they found the first good gold coin. But when they saw how many coins there were and they saw things moving from them, they found, they realized they found something really, like, interesting. So they discovered 2,000 coins several different denominations between the 10th and 12th century. No one has attached an ex exact value on the find except to say that it's so valuable, it's essentially priced. The sixth piece is called the Panagwe. Okay, I can't pronounce this, so I'm just going to give it my best shot. The Panagurishte. Yep, <laughs> Panagurishte treasure. Basically, it's a gold deer head cup. Thing. Um, it was found in 1949, and this is also considered priceless. Um, two brothers were digging for clay at a tile factory in Bulgaria when they stumbled across what they thought was a strange whistle. Further digging uncovered more objects, and when the brothers put their sign to the mayor's office, they found their needs of gold, and there were a lot more in them. So what they thought was being a whistle, they found turned out to be a ceremonial drinking horn from the 4th century BCE. 
There were also golden decanters, a kind of dish, a vase, all of which were thought to be used in religious rituals. They found 13 pounds of solid gold carved into elaborate shapes and intricately decorated. And then the last piece is called the Bactrian gold. And this was found in 1978 and is also considered priceless. This was found at Chilia Tep, which has become known as the Bactrian gold, and it was recovered from six aerial mounds. More than 20,000 gold ornaments were retrieved. Dated between the 1st century BCE and the 1st century CE. Um, and what's the most interesting about this hoard is that the treasures are so diverse. They are objects from China, India, and Greece all mixed together. The Julia is, jewelry is extremely elaborate, so with precious stones of all colors. Um, it has changed hands multiple times and has been displayed at multiple museums around the world. That is my little weird story of real hidden treasure. Beautiful, beautiful. Nicely done. Thank you. So I I like hearing about random treasures. You know, prob- I know, I really like that. Probably one of the most famous is probably the uh the gauntlet. Is that what it's called? What is it called? The, the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail, that's it. <laughs> the gauntlet. So how about another question? <laughs> So what is it? The Da Vinci Code is about? Or Angels and Demons? No, the Da Vinci Code? The da Vinci Code. I, I think it's in the Da Vinci Code. Yeah, I read them all. I should know. Um, the Da Vinci Code is about the Holy Grail, but the Holy Grail ends up being a person, and they're meant to protect the DNA. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I believe you are <laughs> correct. So how about another question? Sounds good. What are some fun and interesting alternatives to war that countries could use to settle their differences with? Paintball fight. Ooh, I like that. I like a paintball fight. That would be fun. Right? And it would also still get the aggression out. How about Hawkins fights? <laughs> like with those... Yeah, or- Yes, that too. That's that's perfect. That's another one. That'd be hilarious. So you want to know Doug's answer? Yeah. Worldwide total earth weed bomb. Um, I love it. <laughs> Stacy's oh like, I'm God. all for it. I am. Like everybody, like, wouldn't it be crazy if everybody just like wove a giant like or rolled like some kind of giant like cross joint that stretched across the earth (laughs) (laughs) that would be funny oh my god that would be (laughs) but that would be really cool can you imagine you just are like you think you're getting bombed and instead of a real bomb it's like just a grenade of pot soak and everybody in the town's like geeking out. <laughs> they're all standing they're all standing there laughing at the everybody walking around because it's just so funny. <laughs> yeah. 
I guess, like, besides the pink belt, I wear, let's see, Hawkman. What else would be a good alternative to war? Um, I feel like maybe, uh, uh, a water balloon fight. Oh, yeah, that would be fine. How about a snowball fight? Yeah, I like that, too. I like that, too. I mean... You just see, like, like everybody in cold temperatures would be snowball fights. Everybody in warmer temperatures would be doing water balloon fights. Yeah. Like, I can just see it now. Like, the British... Uh, what is What do you call a fleet of ships? A fleet? The British fleet? Yeah. <laughs> The British fleet like rolls up, like uses catapults, playing water balloons. <laughs> 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 oh my god, that'd be so funny! Um, oh my god, yeah, that's a good one. All right, so how are you going to wear me out today, Terry? I'm going to weird you out by talking about how Stephen King's books are connected. So everything is connected to the Dark Tower. This one. Okay, I did not get that. This one seems pretty apparent for anyone who's ever read even parts of King's magnum opus, the seven-book Dark Tower series. The series follows a nomadic gunslinger named Rollin as he attempts to reach the Dark Tower and destroy the Crimson King. Along the way, he encounters people who pop up in various other King stories, most notably the villainous Randall Flagg, who is basically the right-hand man of the Crimson King. Flagg, of course, is also the antagonist in The Stand. The world I never of- read The Stand or the Dark Tower series. I started reading the Dark Tower series before I got work from home full-time. Oh, yeah, that's right, because you're not traveling anymore, so you're not listening to books and stuff as much. Yep, and I wonder if you're going to call out this connection, but I do remember one connection that crossed over, and I remember bringing it up when I was reading the book on the podcast. So if you do talk about it, that's cool. If not, I'll bring that one up again. Okay. The world of It is connected to the Dark Tower, too. But Flag isn't the only villain from the King universe to pop up in the Dark Tower series. One of the most famous villains King has ever created is Pennywise. The tit- titular t- t- clown from the book It. Late in the Dark Tower series, Rollin encounters a dangerous creature named Dan- Dandello. Dandello is a servant of the Crimson King, and when killed, he turns into a clown. Basically, Dandello is believed to be Pennywise himself, meaning that he and Flag serve the same master. It is also direct. Huh? Does that mean the, that would mean the Dark Tower series? Okay, so that would either mean the Dark Tower series takes place in like an alternate universe or something, or that like when the it creature is hibernating and he isn't killing children, that he's like going to the Dark Tower and putting the that. Yeah. Or. 
it is the aftermath of after he kills him. After, uh... Oh, No, after Rollin kills him in the Dark Tower series, he becomes it because Pennywise or uh, Dandelo turns into a clown. Well, that's what I was thinking too, but in it, there is a scene in the end where they have like a flashback to the beginning of time and like the beginning of the world and like the stone basically. Like, this is when it manifests itself. Um, so that's why I'm either thinking, like, the Dark Tower had to be take place at the beginning of time, or he's, like, doing that when he's not eating. Oh, okay, I get what you mean. Yeah. This is so interesting, Carrie. Okay, I love it. Going. <laughs> it is also directly connected to The Shining. At this point... Yes, at this point, more people no doubt know The Shining more as that movie starring a crazy Jack Nicholson alongside the kid who went around saying Red Rum. But hey, remember the old caretaker in The Shining, the one who recognized the power that little Danny, a.k.a. the kid who said Red Rum, possessed. His name was Dick Halloran and believed it or not, he was also in the book It, or at least he's referenced in the book. It turns out the father of one of the kids from It served with Halloran during a connection from It to the Dark Tower. Oh my god. That's Misery is also connected to It. Oh my god, this is another one I wanted to read. This one I just got the notification for, but I missed it because he wasn't. <laughs> as it turns out it has a ton of connections to other worlds within the Stephen King universe as well one you probably won't believe is the world of misery which is best known at this point as that movie where Kathy Bates breaks James James Kane's ankles with a sledgehammer in that story the protagonist is Paul Sheldon who it turns out is from the same town as the kids from it in fact, it's revealed that he was the next-door neighbor of one of them. Now that is one doomed little town, isn't it? If you are curious, the town is called Derry. Derry. Derry, Maine. Derry is also home to the alien invasion and Dreamcatcher. Dreamcatcher is another one of those stories you'll probably remember more for its movie adaptation than the actual story. Even yep. though in this even though in this case it's remembering how god awful the movie turned out. Anyway, like good in an awful way. Anyway, in that story four friends were granted certain psychic powers as kids, as is co a common theme in King stories. And when they grow up, they need to try to use their psychic connections to defeat an alien invader, which, yes, takes place in the town of Derry. Derry is a setting in one of King's more recent stories as well. That one is called 112263. 112263 is also connected to Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. 
The story of 112263 is that a young English teacher in Maine is shown a doorway to the past, which will allow him to go back to 1958 and live for five years in that era in order to travel to Dallas, Texas, to thwart Lee Harvey Oswald's attempt to assassinate John F. Kennedy. However, in order to make sure that stopping Oswald will in fact change things for the better, the teacher does a test run by stopping another smaller atrocity, which is a horrific murder in the town of Derry. By the way, it's mentioned several times that criminals in 1958 in Derry were terrified of winding up in Shawshank Prison. That means that amazingly Shawshank Redemption is connected to the Dark Tower. Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption is connected to App Pupil. It doesn't sort of make sense that Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption would be connected to App Pupil since they were part of the same short story connection. Anyway, everyone knows the story of Shawshank thanks to the classic movie, but people may be a little less familiar with App Pupil despite it being a movie that starred Ian McKellen. It is revealed that Andy DeFrusen knew the Nazi war criminal Kurt DeSander, the character McKellen played, and that Andy helped DeSander buy stocks for him a year before he was falsely convicted of murdering his wife and winding up in Shawshank. Dark Tower also has direct connections to Hearts in Atlantis, and Salem's Lot. Later in the Dark Tower series, some very familiar characters are introduced to become allies to Roland and his group, or Catet, if you want to use King's favorite made-up language. One of them is Father Colin, the Callahan, sorry, the preacher from Salem's Lot. In fact, a big chunk of the book of book five of the Dark Tower is told in flashback by Callahan as he goes over some of the run-ins he had with vampires over the years. Another character who becomes central is Ted Brodigan, who was central to one of the stories in Hearts in Atlantis. Hearts in Atlantis is connected to from a Buick 8. Throughout the story, Lao Men in yellow coats, Todd Brodigan was being pursued by, well, low men in yellow coats at the end of the story. Ted is taken away by the low men. In another connection to the Dark Tower, the story closes with a grown Bobby, the other central figure of the story, who befriends Ted when he was a kid receiving an envelope filled with red rose petals from the area surrounding the Dark Tower. The low men connection connect hearts in Atlantis to the book from a Buick 8, as mysterious, mysterious men who fit the description of the Laumen are known to have driven the Buick 8 and cars like it. One such man, a mysterious man dressed in all black, Oh, there's speculation he's actually Randall Flagg. Yep, that guy again. Which makes sense since the Lowmen are basically the henchmen of the Crimson King. 
Dang, everything really is connected. It all goes back to the top. And Family, a secret organization, is responsible for everything. Throughout the King universe, a shadowy organization known as the Shop is mentioned and appears to be behind the scenes, pulling strings and screwing around with horrible experiments that always end in disaster. One such experiment is that they gave the titular character in Firestarters her powers, and another was that they become involved in an operation called the Arrowhead Project. The Arrowhead Project is responsible for creating the the rip in reality that allows the monsters to enter in and terrorize the world in the mist. The rip in reality, by the way, would appear to be a thinning, which is a spot in the world where the boundary between one world and another is weak and could be easily punctured. You know what other work by King has thinnies? You guessed it, the Dark Tower. Yet more evidence that in King's universe, literally everything is connected. So that's kind of interesting that everything is connected in his stories. It's insane. And I don't think they said it, but I know you mentioned 11, 22, 63. When yes. he goes back, I mean, you mentioned Derry, but like when he goes back to Derry, there's a scene where he's like, I can't remember what he's doing. The guy is like, walking in a park or like, but he comes across these two kids and they're dancing. And um, it's Debbie from the Levy, so Beverly from It. And I can't remember which one she's with. Uh, I don't remember which one she's with, I think. No, Richie? Maybe it is Richie. Um, but like, he basically runs into the people from It and he did, like, he can't, he, they, he, he says and they say, like, Basically, they have to cut their conversation short because if strangers were to walk there, they'd be super weirded out with him as an adult male talking to them because of the child murders that just happened in Derry. So when he gets there, it, it had just ended. Like, the first it. The first child part of it. Yeah. Like, part one. Yeah. So I thought that was cool. Like, the whole town is, like, all weirded out and sketched because they just went through, like, all these child murders. Yeah. So, um, speaking of Stephen King, have you watched any of Castle Rock on Hulu? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay, so Castle Rock is actually based in the King universe, and it's got, like, twists and turns through like going through all of his stories. So it takes pieces from the stories and like kind of like intertwines them, but also like creates different stories with it. It's kind of interesting. I've watched a couple episodes and it's actually pretty good. That's awesome. All right. So we're going to finish off the episode with one more question and then we're going to close her out. If you 
if you were a therapist and yourself was sitting in front of you, what would you say to that bitch? Say it one more time, cut out. If your therapist and yourself was sitting in front of you, what would you say to that bitch? Oh. If, like, if, like if I was my therapist? Yeah, if you were a therapist and yourself was sitting oh. in front of you, what would you say to that bitch? I would say that low self-confidence is your biggest hindrance in life and you need to get over it because... The only person that thinks shitty things about you is yourself, and no one else does. And you just need to get over it. You're worth it, and you're a bad bitch, like I said earlier. Amen, sister. What I would say is that I need to stop putting myself down when I mess up, because people are allowed to mess up, and... You just need to pick yourself up from it and be better because of the mistake or because of the thing that happens, not dwell on it. Yes, exactly. So no need to feel. I have that too. I suffer. I like beat myself up terribly. And of course, Doug's answer: You're a fabulous bitch. So until next time, stay true and stay weird. Bye. This has been a production of Claywater Media. Check out Tackled, Kind of a Big Deal, Off the Beat Math Podcast, and Carpool Podcast. Anywhere that you enjoy listening to podcasts.